that positivity, understanding how much our energy and our body language can affect other people is really, really important. And that also encouraged me to continue expressing myself because that was like a wake up call. Like, no, you got to keep doing this, man. If this is like how you feel, if you want to let it out, you got to let it out. So to me, the, the positivity and people define it different ways. I really see it as it's not a mask. It's kind of an acknowledgement of everything. You know, you're, you're acknowledging weaknesses or challenges, but you're also acknowledging the positives and you're, you're choosing to spend more of your mental energy on that and on the things, and this goes back to the ankle thing and on the things that you can control. So acknowledging everything, learning from where you can, not, not brushing anything under the rug. I'm Danny Lucchini, and this is the Merakai Performance Podcast. And this is episode 13 of the Merakai Performance Podcast. And on today's show, I have Brian Neverson. You would have heard him speaking just at the start there. Now, Brian came on today to talk the, all things FRC, mobility, and of course, smiles. Uh, for those who don't know, Brian is the best smiler on Instagram. He has a business called Smiles Takes You Miles and a gym uh, that he works out of called Smiles as well. So he's a personal trainer with a degree in kinesiology and he's an FRC practitioner. He brings a uniquely beautiful energy to Instagram and he's full of smiles and positivity and uh, he does a great job of sharing different forms of FRC tutorials and jumping tutorials and jumping ex and, sorry, uh, expressions of playfulness that I think is something we all could do with a little bit more in our lives. I've always been drawn to his positive energy and also how he's able to clearly instruct various exercises and, clear description and uh, deliver a clear description of ideas. It was a real pleasure to have him on today and joining us from Philadelphia via Zoom. So I really want to thank Brian for his time and, and joining me on the show. And uh, in today's episode, we talk about his history as an athlete and a coach. We go in depth about FRC and what separates it from other training methods. And I think we have a really good conversation there about the details. Uh, it helped that I also have an FRC certification. So a bit of background information there allowed us to really go into some really in-depth but also practical uh, applications of FRC and how to use it. We talk about how to utilize it within a grand training plan, which is often where it can get lost. We talk about the, I guess, importance of empowering our clients by giving them skills and various bits of information to allow them to develop a better sense of body autonomy, autonomy and awareness so they can really learn, one, how their body feels and what to do if it doesn't feel the way they want it to feel. We talk about the comparison between looking at internal stimulus versus external stimulus coming from. You know, for example, a barbell. A barbell. We talk about uh, why prerequisite joint movements uh, are so important, and why it's important to have independent joint function when in, when performing gross motor skills. We talk about how mobility creates an opportunity for better performance and more movement experience. We also talk about how it may influence our injury risk. Uh, by reducing it. We talk about the role of the nervous system in training and movement, and we go through a case study on how FRC can help a return to sport after a spiral ankle fracture, which is a horrible injury. Uh, I've seen one person who had a spiral fracture in their tibia, and I've never heard a grown man scream like that. Uh, then we're going to uh, how to develop a positive attitude and how to help our clients work towards that as well. Brian finishes by sharing some really useful advice for an up-and-coming trainer uh, on not just how to progress as a trainer, but how do you look after yourself in the process. I want to thank you for joining us today. And without further ado, here is today's episode. To another episode of the Merakai Performance Podcast. Today I have with me Brian, and we're going to be talking all things mobility, smiles, and FRC. Welcome to the show, man. Oh, thank you. I appreciate you having me on. Super glad to have you here. And again, the wonders of, of Zoom allowing me to connect with uh, Brian here is in Philadelphia. So we've got a morning Saturday here and a Friday afternoon there. And uh, we're going to jump straight into it. Did you want to start by taking us through your, I guess, your own athletic background and your own coaching sort of history and what's led you to the point where you are now? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I... I've always been pretty naturally um, 
I guess, coordinated and into athletics. I always wanted to play and run and jump, uh, especially the powerful stuff. Um, I kind of had a knack for it. And because of that, that's, that's the direction I wanted to go. Um, in fact, I actually always dreamed of playing in the NFL and being five foot six and the tallest one in my immediate family that it wasn't really in the cards. <laughs> um, but I, I played football up in middle school into high school, uh, ran some track, and then actually got really into ultimate frisbee. And that's where um, I played that in college. And it's a pretty interesting sport because it combines a lot of different qualities from other sports, the endurance, the power, the change of direction, and then, you know, the throwing and catching. So a pretty nice competitive outlet. And along the way, um, from a pretty early age, I got a lot of injuries. And that has really guided my personal and professional growth, I think, in direction. So I, um, I got early shoulder injuries, concussions in high school, nagging, hip injuries, broken bones. So by the time I was in my early 20s and graduating from college at, at Penn State University, um, I was in chronic pain <laughs> and much more so than most people my age. Um, so I, I started training. I got a degree, um, Bachelor of Science in Kinesiology. I did some strength and conditioning work with the Ultimate Frisbee team at Penn State. And I got a job full-time at a personal training gym in the area. And within a year or within a few months, I was doing 40 to 50 private training sessions a week, training people from 10 years old to 90 years old. So it was a pretty you know, it ramped up pretty quickly. And suddenly I'm like, Oh, man, I'm, I'm a professional trainer now, I guess. <laughs> and uh, so that from that point, um, there was, I was very fortunate. And I was in with an organization that had really high standards, and really pushed for growth and continuing education. So over the years, I, I learned a lot more from um, Gray Cook, Gary Gray, mm. Eric Cressy was a big one. Um, he was the person I first, I first really started learning about the difference between structural damage and like functional ability. You know, starting learning about like an MRI doesn't tell the whole story. You know, mm. a, a torn labrum doesn't mean you need major shoulder surgery. What was the cause of that? And so that's when I first started looking into like root causes of pain and dysfunction. Um, yeah. So over the years, I, I then started training trainers. So I kind of became, I, I would work with new, um, uh, new employees. And then I was introduced to in 20 January of 2016, I went to my first FRC functional range conditioning seminar. And that's where like the whole game shifted. So that's where the last four or five years, um, those principles have guided a lot of my own training and coaching philosophy. Um, and, and that's where the biggest gains have come for sure. Awesome, man. Uh, yeah, so anyone that follows Brian on Instagram knows that power and expressions of power are definitely his thing. And it always gives me a whole bunch of joy just watching him run around, play and be able to jump ridiculously high. <laughs> So yeah, being five foot six, I don't think you could probably, can you dunk a basketball? Not at this point. I can't palm uh, it on, on a good day. I can get, you know, I can get about wrist on rim. Yeah. If I got the, maybe if I got the perfect alley-oop, I could put it in, but yeah, cool. not yet. <laughs> yeah. And, and again, also for those that haven't really seen Ultimate Frisbee, it really is a true expression of athleticism. Um, it's it, like you said, it involves a lot of the attributes of other sport. Plus you're then adding in throwing, catching and, that, that coordination element. And I do want to come back to coordination a little bit later. Um, but yeah, I, I think it's a really, I guess, common story uh, as trainers or people that are athletic uh, who go through that, that, you know, really like to push ourselves, injuries come up and that's what causes us to dive in and it creates that own interest. And like you brought up people like Eric Cressy, who's like king of the shoulder and 
and you know some really good guys there so that all led to that that you know that understanding of pain and a different way to look at it and then frc comes in and you say it was this big shift and i hear that from everyone that does frc basically and i did it and i had a similar big shift what is it about frc that creates that huge shift what's so different about it that just makes everyone go <laughs> well i think it it tries to take a more kind of bird's eye view of physiology and just humans in general and peel away some of the preconceived notions we have about about training and about exercise you know the one thing that uh andreo spina talks about is that exercise is this human invention and convention that is made to bridge the gap between what we're supposed to do as humans and what we actually do. Um, so I think looking at it from a different lens is big and so much of what we do, it, there, it's, it's kind of arbitrary, like squats, deadlifts, different things that we create. Um, and we can end up as coaches, as athletes, almost try to put you know a square peg in a round hole in doing things that aren't appropriate for us or spending energy in places that doesn't don't best serve us just because that's what we know and that's what the industry has done so yeah frc i think the big thing that clicked for me and when i was like i need to go to a seminar was i saw a youtube video of dre andreo spina talking about how we're constantly adapting that our body is always laying down new tissue in response to whatever stimulus we're giving it. Mm. So like me 10 years later, I have very few of the same tissues because there's this constant recycling and, and regrowth based on the stimulus. So I have so much power to change what my body can do. However, it, we, we need to direct that appropriately and that's what really got me into it and thinking from that lens you start realizing how what our body is able to do is such a product of the and this goes to one of your points i think in in a very recent post i just saw like the chronic inputs mm. the chronic inputs over time that's going to lead that can lead to enormous and very powerful changes in whatever yeah. direction we want yeah, and I think that that's basically it, isn't it? Because we often look at, at exercise as, you know, we measure the external load. We, we look at the squat. We look at these movements. But what really matters is the internal load that those implements and those tools are uh, adding to our system. And then, like you said, the changes that are being made because of that. Right, right, exactly. And, and intent is so, is so big. Um, like, what are we trying to get out of this? And I know, I mean, there's, there's an ego to certain things. Like I, not as much anymore, but I used to love to like, see how much I could deadlift. And I still, I like to see how high I can jump. Now it's a little different, but yeah, just adding load to this very specific pattern is different than saying, Hey, I want my shoulder to internally rotate better. So like I could add maximal load to an internal rotation force. And that way I'm using my energy in a way that is most productive for my needs. Um, but so many times we don't think that way where if you're max deadlifting, it's still an enormous um, challenge to your system, but it may not be specifically applied to your needs. Yeah, precisely. And you know, especially when we're talking about big global movements like that, there's, there's multiple joint actions happening. But if the one that, you know, we're specifically trying to target isn't capable of doing that movement, something else is going to have to do it, right? And that's a lot of the premise of, of FRC, right? It's allowing each joint to do its role within a bigger movement. Exactly right. That, that's, that's another big principle that really rang true to me was that a couple things The one that movements have joint prerequisites, you know, like an, uh, a, a front squat is going to have a lot of dorsiflexion, um, hip flexion, and, and depending on how you're holding it, wrist extension. So if any of those joints don't move how they need to for that movement, 
some other area is going to take on a lot of extra load. And so the joint prerequisite idea is big. And then the joint, this goes right into it, the joint independence before interdependence. So like all of our joints, if they all work well independently, it's going to be much easier to get them to work well together. And I, I actually have a, a, a cool story on that, that I had been, I had loved pistol squats and I've been into them and I've been training them, which is the typical, like, see how low I can go and get back up. Can I go down to a box and get back up? You know, and I'd, I'd cramp up or I'd get knee pain. I'd get some major spinal flexion. And after the FRC seminar, I would do my ankle cars, hip knee cars, the rotations, all the pails, rails, the isometrics. And after about five or six months of not even trying pistol squats, I was doing this weird crawl kind of duck walk thing. And I started moving backwards. I started, well, maybe I can do this backwards. And I accidentally ended up in a deep pistol squat and stood up out of it. And I immediately thought of, of Dre and thought of, oh, joint independence first. And it just clicked. It's one thing to know it, but then when you, when you feel it and experience it yourself, you're like, I didn't even practice this and it got so much better. Yeah, that's uh, that experiential understanding. I think it's irreplaceable. You can have all the theoretical understanding of something, but the second you feel it and you really experience it, that's when you can go, ah, there it is. That's the aha moment. And it, it can really guide us in a really powerful way, but we have to expose ourselves to those opportunities which is where play can be really effective, right? Absolutely. Oh, and you, you may know I'm, I'm a huge fan and proponent of play. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, so, it's so effective. We can, it's an opportunity to learn. And that's one of the reasons I love the mobility training too is um, in the, the kind of the joint specific training is that you're, you're creating more capacity for movement and expression. And to me, I derive great meaning from life. And I think a lot of people do and could more, but maybe don't realize it from play, you know, from being able to play and having the freedom to express yourself, however feels right without the negative consequences of pain and constant injury. It's very powerful. Yeah. And it's, it's something I've spoken about at a seminar before actually, and it's one of our biggest roles as trainers well, I believe should be, I hate using the word should, but you know, could be to give people the opportunity to experience more things. And if we open up capacity for certain movements, for certain activities, whether it be hiking, rock climbing, just playing around in a park within that space, there's now an opportunity for that person to experience something. And that's the, like, to me, I think that's the greatest gift we can give anyone. And if one of the ways we can do that is by making their joints move better, then I think that's, you know, something worth exploring. I, I completely agree. And I, I found that is effective. And that actually reminds me, I had a little conversation with um, um, Sam, Samantha Fallhaber yesterday, mm. actually. And, and she brought up the idea of, you know, what is live something to the degree of what is living without personal choice or without freedom of choice. And as I see it, I do agree a lot with that sentiment and by training and improving joint health, improving mobility and our movement capacity, we're expanding our choices. You have more choices. I could walk down the street and jump down the stairs or do a somersault or jump, uh, do a flip or something versus limping down the street or, you know, so if your body is capable of more, you have more options to choose from. Yeah. And more freedom. It, exactly. It doesn't become the limiting factor. You know, your mind says, I want to go over there and jump on top of that rock. Well, I'm just going to go do it. And that's, that's a powerful thing to be able to do and to be able to give as trainers. Absolutely. So in saying that, did you want to take us through uh, the specifics of FRC? You sort of brought up a bunch of terms before there, pails, rails, uh, <laughs> cars. What are they and how you know, in general, is it applied and what makes that different to other flexibility or other mobility practices such as say yoga or just, you know, the general stretching you get taught in your PT certificate? That's a, that's a great question. So I'll start with the, the cars. So 
that's an acronym for controlled articular rotations, which essentially is just a large pain-free uh, joint circle. So you take the joint throughout its largest pain-free rotational range of motion. So you can imagine like a large shoulder circle, a large ankle circle. The goal being to express its fullest movement without moving the rest of the body or minimally moving the rest. And what that does is that movement and that rotational movement at the joint helps bring nutrients in and out of the joint, in and out of areas that typically don't get a lot of nutrient supply otherwise. So really important for maintenance. Um, it also helps us, especially when we go through our fullest range of motion, stimulate all the um, mechanoreceptors. And by doing that, we help keep our joints healthy and we improve feedback from um, our joints to the nervous system, which can improve coordination and learning. So cars are kind of like the foundation mm. of like, that's the lowest hanging fruit too. You know, it, it's a little easier to do. You can ramp it up if you want, but that's like the, that's the big one um, that I find to be really helpful. Yeah. And that's, that's going back to that independent joint function you're talking about before being able to isolate that one, that one joint, let it do its role, learn how to do it really well, which is back to that coordination point that we sort of talked about at the start and also maintain its health because mechanoreceptors are things that basically allow it to do movement. And you know, uh, what's the saying? You can't, if you don't use it, you lose it. So it's, it's just an opportunity to type, tap into that. Even if you don't do anything else in the day, you've at least given it something, right? That's kind of the premise behind it. Exactly. Yeah. You can think of, you know, yeah, if you don't use it, you lose it. So how often I use this for like parents, if, if they have kids, how often do you reach back into the back seat of the car? Uh, and I've had clients and students get injured doing that because like how often on a daily basis do you reach way back at this awkward angle? Um, and that's just one example of all the angles through a daily basis that we don't hit. And so over time, we start to lose that. And consequently, not only do we lose the range of motion and increase injury risk, uh, we also are just degrading the overall health of the joint. So yeah, cars, cars are really effective. And as a coach, they're an effective um, assessment tool as well. So they're really effective as an intervention and as an exercise for improvement. Um, but they're also great to assess someone's ability. If you have someone go for a hip or a shoulder circle and it looks really funky and they have really low range of motion, that's an immediate red flag. And if you coach them through it and it doesn't improve much over time, that's when we'd probably want to look at other interventions. So that's where uh, the pales rails could come in. So the pales and rails, that's, that's a fun one. Um, mm. that, that stands for progressive angular isometric loading and regressive angular isometric loading. So what's great about the system is it's using principles. These aren't new principles. It's just a way of, of thinking through it. Um, it's really effective. So essentially, if you imagine a hamstring stretch, I like this example. I feel like people can visualize it pretty well. But if you imagine a hamstring stretch, you're lying down with your leg up and you know, someone's holding it and you're, you're kind of close to your end range and you want to improve your ability to lift your leg. For Pales Rails, what you would do is hold the stretch for a couple minutes, breathing deeply, get your nervous system ready. Then you would slowly drive your heel into whoever's holding your leg. So you're engaging all of the stretch tissue, the hamstrings on the back of the leg. So that's where the progressive term comes in. So the progressive tissue, the stretch tissue is being activated. You would do that for 10 to 20 seconds, roughly, at a ramping up to a pretty high effort. And then the rails contraction, the regressive angular isometric loading, is you're actively pulling further into the stretch. So I would take my, my uh, hip flexors, abs, maybe quad, and try to pull my leg actively higher 
rather than having the person holding my leg push my leg. So I'm, I'm working for it for about 10 to 20 seconds. Then you would reset in your newly acquired range, though it may only be millimeters. <laughs> and, um, and then you can repeat if you'd like. So the real difference that I see in FRC compared to some other um, practices is the focus on active inputs in addition to passive. So we might stretch, but we're also going to go, you need to create force here. So the cars, you're creating force through large range of motion, pales, rails, you're creating a lot of force at your end ranges. Yeah. And anyone that's gone through pales, rails knows that the rails is when the fun starts. <laughs> oh yeah. Especially in those, yeah, those uh, hip flexors, uh, internal rotators, those sort of hip, those deeper hip muscles. It's, it's, it's always a good time. And um, I think that is, that's one of the big differences. Like, even if you, you know, if you think back to the traditional types of stretching, you're taught, like we have something like PNF stretching, which is very similar to a pale. It's basically the same thing, but it doesn't have that active shortening, which if we think about, you know, utilizing range of motion, it's all well and good to be able to get out of it. But what about getting into it as well? And I think that's a big difference that it offers and something that's uh, a really important consideration. Mm -hmm. Like if, even if we look at a squat, for example, people, you know, we need a certain amount of hip flexion, but it, it is a passive hip flexion. Why would we, so for a movement like that, why would we need to focus on also that active hip flexion? Because if, you know, you're going down in the squat, you're going to hip flexion passively. Why do we need to train that in range there as well? Well, it's, it's important to have that stability in that position and not just kind of hang out in the joint. So um, yeah, be, when we end up in positions where we don't have full neurological control and we do it repetitively, there generally is gonna be degradation of the joint and the tissue. So, so that's, that's a great point because there are a lot of people who have large passive ranges of motion and people get, can get in trouble with that because yeah, they end up being able to get into a lot of positions with load or with their body weight, but not have full control. And so you can end up with people who, who are quote unquote tight, who have fewer issues than someone who can put their leg behind their head. Because if I can only, you know, if I can only squat down, uh, you know, halfway into a, a deep squat, but I have control of that whole range or close to, well, my my window of injury potential is a little lower versus if someone can squat, you know, butt to the ground, but they only really have control of two thirds of that range. There's a slice of that where they can go, but they don't have control. Yeah. That's all. Yeah. Really great answer there. And uh, you brought up a, another important point there. What is quote unquote tight? Uh, you know, uh, why the quotation marks there? What, Cause you know, we think about, okay, I have a tight muscle, maybe my tight hip flexor. Does that mean that that hip flexor is shortened or, you know, does it actually tight? Can I play it like a guitar string? Like what does that mean? Yeah. Well, a lot of people use the, the term tight to, and, and use that along with short, you know? So, but the reality is we're not length, we're not really lengthening our muscles. Um, what that generally is, is the nervous system is inhibiting movement for a specific reason. And usually because it, we perceive may, maybe danger or maybe that we can't control that range. So as a, as a quick little aside here, I used to foam roll like crazy hmm. before lifting because that's how I felt like it loosened me up. Um, and it, and it did, but I didn't lay down strength afterwards. So I was essentially loosening myself up and then I would squat heavy or I would deadlift heavy and I would access ranges that my body couldn't control. Now the challenge there is that the tension and the tightness I felt was serving a purpose, a protective purpose. And I was trying to override that by foam rolling and then load up a position my body was trying to tell me not, not to get into. Mm. Um, so I found, and I found anecdotally with myself and then heard from a lot of other people as well when I didn't foam roll or 
when I stretched or foam rolled, but then did isometrics or cars afterwards, I experienced less pain. Um, because using pales rails, using cars, using some sort of isometrics, if we can get to the end range where we're tight or we feel tight and we can express force and demonstrate to our nervous system that we have control here over time will be granted more range of motion. It's like, Hey, I, I can control this. I'm comfortable here. Please let me have more range of motion. <laughs> and yeah. you say that enough times to your nervous system and then it'll generally start to grant you that. Yeah. And that's, you know, going back to that point uh, where you brought up the post I put up about the chronic versus acute inputs, the foam roller is that acute input. It's making a sudden change, but it's, you know, our body doesn't usually respond super well to them. It might listen to us for like a short amount of time, but that's not going to hang around. It doesn't care about that. It's going to forget. And like, it's, you know, you know, don't like to speak about the body too uh, metaphorically, but it's basically like building trust. And you need to do that slowly. I love that. Yeah. Yeah. You, you need to do it slowly you, and you do need to build trust with your nervous system. Mm. Um, you know, I, I, one thing I like to say when we're doing pales rails is I'll, we'll do that. And the rails contraction after that, it's generally very uncomfortable and then you relax. And what people want to do is then completely bail out of the stretch. And I'll tell them, <laughs> and this is good for if, if, for FRC coaches or if people are getting into this, um, tell people before you count them all the way down, you know, I'll go like four three, hold the stretch when I count you down, don't come out of it, two, one, and then I'll have them breathe and even say like, right now you're convincing your nervous system that this is cool, like you wanna be here, you're comfortable here. Um, so yeah, I think there, there really is trust built and you can think about pain and tension tend to also arise when we feel, yeah, when we feel a threat, whether it's mm -hmm. real or not, I mean, what is real anyway? You know, if it's perceived, it's there. Um, so we need to spend time in these positions and just like you said, build that trust. Oh man, yeah, it's, it's so many parallels there. Like even if we look at, you know, high pressure situations in a sporting game, the first thing that happens is people tighten up, hip flexors, they get into this, like they can't open up uh, through their running or if they're going for, you know, a kick or something, a, a high pressure game that tightening up is because of a fear response or, a, or an anxiety response. You know, they kind of all, it's all tapping into the nervous system. So if we can, yeah, apply that same principle to the training. Yeah. You don't want to jump out of that stretch when you get home from a really hard, you know, training session in the heat, you don't want to come home and skull water and get in a cold shower. You maybe want to sit with that and sit with those feelings of discomfort because you're letting yourself know that it is okay. And I can be here and I can relax into that. And whether it's, you know, literally getting the benefit from the pales rails or if you're just applying it to other situations you're training your nervous system to just be chill even if the situation isn't so chill right exactly right man there, there's so much i like about that and there's yeah there's a lot of value in getting comf comfortable with that discomfort in a lot of different contexts and ultimately yeah if you can if you can learn to appropriately signal to your nervous system like you know this is okay like we can deal with this then you can handle more adversity um, and specifically for yeah for athletes where performance um, is big and performing under high stress and high fatigue circumstances is important yeah you you need to be able to handle that stress and some of this training i think is helpful from mental as well as physical standpoint so like physiologically if you can be at your end range and be producing maximal effort and breathe through the cramps and signal to your nervous system to release this unwanted contraction, that could have really profound effects on the field, as well as the mental belief that like, I can control myself, I can control my body. Yeah, exactly. It gives you, it gives you an opportunity to tap into that mental aspect. And, you know, we talk about, you know, training it or performance is 90% mental and, you know, all these things, but what do we actually do to, to improve the mental? Well, this is an opportunity to do it. If you can train someone to, like you said, breathe through the cramps and you know, anyone that's done a 90, 90 hip 
internal rotation pales rails nose discomfort and if you can if you can sit with that and breathe with that then it's going to carry over into all your elements of training right right yeah so we've done our cars uh which you talked about is like gaining that joint dependence we've got and it's also a way of assessing and i think uh, something i did want to sort of talk, bring up there quickly was like i think as trainers we often assess people when they walk in the first time and we go through a full body assessment or whatever it is and then never again <laughs> and we, <laughs> yep and i think uh, you probably agree here that cars is a great way to do it on the daily basis because things change every day. Right. Oh, totally. I mean, that, that is, that's another big lesson that, you know, we, we kind of know, but FRC really reinforced is that we are constantly changing and I'm not the same today as I was yesterday. Mm. And there's so many variables more than we can even understand neurologically, physiologically that, that affect us. So a car's routine is, I think, a really, really important thing for a lot of people to adopt because you're, every day you get an opportunity to check in with your joints, take inventory, what's feeling good today, where's my trend? And as coaches, because we generally don't see people every day, it's a good way to um, have people em empower themselves and help people empower themselves. I think that's... That's very important. Yeah, do, do your cars and then you can check in and ask how they were. You can do cars with the person. And that's one thing you can absolutely tell if the person's done them. Say, <laughs> if I see an athlete once a week and they haven't done their cars a single day, I can generally tell. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so it's an accountability measure as well as I, I think an empowering um, self thing for the athlete or for the student because they're able to tune in and connect better with themselves and their body. Yeah. And that's massive. That's like, that's, that's one of the big things that, you know, I'm super on and you brought up Sam before and it's, I know Sam's uh, really big on it's creating body autonomy and it's allowing people to form a relationship with their own body as opposed to, you know, relying on this foam roller or relying on, you know, my trainer to stretch me out. Like, no, I have these tools which tell me what I need. And then we introduce something like the Pales Rails. And once they understand how to use that, they know they're feeling tight in a certain range. They can go through a Pales Rails or some sort of other tool that, you know, I think we're going to talk about next is it gives them that opportunity to, to be in control of their body. And, you know, you're not always there. We're not with them 24-7. I don't think the goal is to be with them forever. So yeah. we're creating avenues for them to look after themselves which is again another huge role as trainers definitely totally agree with that all right so we've done our pals rails we've opened up some range there uh hopefully and we've also put in some inputs some strength inputs at those end ranges too how do we then connect that into you know a more global movement how does that then become running how does that then become throwing what are the next steps that's a great question. I think a, a big challenge with this can be incorporating it into more of a conventional type strength training or athletic training program. And what I see is that they can be concurrent. You know, this is not an all or none. This is not a replacement for the other training. It's, I started off because, you know, rather than shocking someone into like, oh, you're not doing any squats or deadlifts or running, we're doing FRC. It's more of this is a supplement, you know, you start with your cars and then it becomes, it gradually becomes a bigger block of their training. So what I, what I generally will think the way I usually look at it is what does this person need to do? You know, if they're playing a sport or if it's more recreationally, what do they want to do and what do they do and where, what's our big lowest hanging fruit? What are our biggest priorities? So as an example, I had a client who just had really, really poor ankle dorsiflexion. It's like, we're going to keep doing what we, what we do. We're going to minimize the deep squatting. We're going to minimize the running volume for now. And we're going to like really hammer ankles um, and continue to work kind of on, on the other joints. So we'll do cars. Um, so there might be slightly less volume of the training they're typically used to and exchanging some of that mental and physical energy for some pails, rails, some extra cars. 
And as we get, and we, we kind of uh, touched on this uh, recently, but as we get more buy-in mm. from the athlete or from the client, then you can start to shift that. But just like the whole building trust with yourself, you know, if you, if you totally just throw out someone's training paradigm um, for FRC, it's generally not going to go very well. <laughs> yeah. And I think that's, it's, you know, I try to, when I got into the FRC, I instantly created this huge FRC bias. And like you said, it was mm -hmm. very, it's, it is very, one of those things where you walk out of there going, wow, this is amazing. Everyone should be doing this right now. And I went out and let's go FRC for everyone. But it's, it's very different. It's, it's way more challenging than it might seem than traditional forms of mobility training, perhaps. And yeah, if you don't create buy-in first, you, you lose people. And, you know, people have paradigms. They have their own uh, idea of what training is. And if you just completely remove that from them, then, well, you know, they're going to walk away pretty quickly because they, they want to get strong in what they think is, you know, traditional strength. Exactly. And like, I think of when, if I hadn't gone to a seminar and some coach had just told me, you know, hold this stretch for two minutes, do isometrics. <laughs> it's going to be, it's going to, it's not going to look cool. It's going to be really hard and you won't immediately understand the changes. Um, <laughs> it's, it is a tough sell and you can walk out of the seminar thinking, wow, my body, I shouldn't be doing any of the things I'm doing. Um, <laughs> uh, but the reality is it's like, just like any other changes, because as coaches, a lot of what we do is try to help guide positive behavioral changes. Um, and that needs to happen gradually. You know, we're not looking at totally shifting. So if, if someone's lifting five times a week, okay, well, maybe we just start incorporating. One of my favorite things to start is incorporating cars. Do cars in between sets of deadlifts or in between sets of um, bench press, something like that. And that way, over the course of a week, you may accumulate a pretty large volume and it doesn't feel like it's interfering so much. So that's usually a pretty good starting point, I find. Yeah, and that's you know the real art of coaching. It's like, how can we give them what they need uh, while also letting them do what they want and, you know, what their coach might want or whatever it is. Because again, if you get a, a an athlete, you can't say, you can't go to a football training today. Like it's, it's not your choice. That's, that's so we have to work in around them. Um, and on t in touching on that, what if I have an athlete and comes to me and, you know, perhaps he's with his coach as well. So it's a, it might be a football player or, or ultimate Frisbee player. And they say, look, this FRC stuff seems great, but, you know, how is it going to make me a better athlete? How is it going to, you know, increase my ability to score a goal or score a touchdown this weekend? That, that's a good one. And it can be tough. And what I would say is it's going to increase your capacity to develop other qualities. So the, the FRC training is going to help you become stronger help you become more coordinated. You know, if you're without that joint specific mobility type training, you're going to hit a stiffer plateau is kind of how I would think of it with, with your power work, with your speed work, with whatever other skills it might be. If you can improve your overall joint health and movement capacity, then the stimulus for your other training is going to be more potent. And I, I've found that in myself and in others that they require less of a training stimulus for other qualities, for strength or speed, less time and energy spent yields greater changes. So it's, it's kind of like an investment in that if you spend a little more time now or a lot more, depending on their willingness in the FRC work, theoretically, we should be mitigating injury. And that's a huge plus but also improving import, uh, performance potential in the future. Yeah, basically, cool. Here's, here's a better shoulder. You can now go out and throw more pitches and yeah. not get hurt, right? Well, you know, less likely to get hurt anyway. Totally. That, and that's, that's one big point that, um, that Andrea Spina makes is that, you know, as you gain more range of motion and more control and strength within that range of, say, the shoulder – anything you do with the shoulder is going to 
better distribute load throughout all the tissues versus if you have limitations there, even if you can pitch really fast or even if you can throw or, or reach really high, um, that load is being concentrated. And as you improve that joint health, it's more distributed. So you're just less likely to degrade the tissues with training and with sport. Yeah, awesome. And that's, I guess, one of the uh, criticisms I hear of FRC is like, well, why don't you just go out and, you know, instead of training hip flexion, just go out and do a lunge or something. But it's like you said, it's, it's, it's not allowing that load to be distributed in the way that it potentially could be in a more efficient way to allow you to do more of it and then eventually get more progress in whatever it is you're actually working towards. Exactly. And it, again, it, is, it can be a tough sell. And if you haven't experienced the changes, it's difficult to, to buy in. So um, yeah, for athletes, talking about coordination as well is important because as, as most athletes can uh, relate to, if you have pain or stiffness at a joint, whether it's an acute injury or not, like you can tell that you're, you're not as coordinated. You know, I've had knee pain where I feel like, is this even my leg? Like I, you know, running feels different. Things don't feel as fluid. So the more, the healthier your joints are, the more coordinated you are, the quicker, quicker you'll learn skills. Um, and the more responsive you are uh, to variables. Like I've found, you know, I personally have been pretty um, coordinated my whole life. And but I've found improvements in coordination from like improving shoulder and wrist mobility. And suddenly I'm doing like you, you pick up new skills more quickly. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Cause you have, you have capacity and the body, you know, I train a lot of runners and, you know, we want certain joint angles and we want the body to be able to do certain things. And I can tell someone all day to, you know, get their knee into this position or get their hip into this position, but if they don't have the range all the strength in that range so the nervous system thinks it's okay, it's never going to get there. But if I can give them that, usually things will start to figure out how to do it themselves. It's, it creates an organic environmental constraint and allows the body to try to just do what it does best, which is move efficiently. When we're here to save energy, not to use energy. Our bodies are pretty good at that. So if we can create a body that moves in a way that it quote unquote should, then it's probably going to figure out better ways to do things. And like you said, you end up appearing more coordinated, but really it's just, you have more capacity. Totally. Yeah. There's, and I think you bring up a great point in that we can't, um, we can't cue people out of like biological barriers. If, mm. if their knee or their hip or their ankle isn't going to move a certain way because it literally can't, you know, you can cue them all day long to, change their knee angle or get deeper into a squat or whatever else it might be. And it's not going to happen. Um, so, and, and that also brings about the autonomy, which I think is so important that you mentioned before is if we can, yeah, if we can have someone's body work well and all those components, the joints work really well, they, they will be able to better figure things out on their own as well. And there's a lot of power in that. Yeah, I completely agree, man. That's huge. Um, cool. Uh, I want to kind of wrap up the FRC there because I want to get into some, another topic with you. But just to sort of, I guess, finish and to summarize, could you take us through uh, perhaps yourself as a case study or maybe a client you've had? Because I know you had obviously a, a big journey with your shoulder and I think re more recently was a knee. How yeah. would like the journey of here's the initial either injury or just someone who presents how would you take them through a full process to get back to being better than they were before? I know this is very contextual, but if we could just yeah. get a case study to just give people a, a more visual representation. Absolutely. Well, I, I can use, so a friend and client of mine had a, a, a bad ankle break. It was a spiral fracture, had Oof. rods put in, had, it was, it was a whole spiral fractures hurt. And I'd, I'd been telling him, I'm not going to have him listen to this episode now. Um, I'd been telling him, <laughs> For, for a, a, over a year, we need to improve your ankle mobility. Now, this happened, it probably would have broken anyway. But he was in a cast, 
And my first thought, this was after I went through my own surgery for my shoulder. My first thought was we need to get active inputs in there as, as much as we can safely. So he's in a cast and I'm telling him like, can you wiggle your toes? No pain. Great. Next day, is the pain better or worse? Same. As long as it's not worse, we're going to keep wiggling the toes. So that, you know, I always think like, you don't want to be causing a lot of pain. I, you know, the, the fracture, that's a new thing to me to be rehabbing. However, if we can put forces through those tissues, that's good. That's going to instruct the laying down of new tissue and the healing. So eventually, especially as the swelling went down, he had some play with his foot and his ankle and he could do isometrics in his cast where he would invert and evert his ankle, you know, press it against the cast. Same process, start really low level, low effort and do it a lot throughout the day and just take inventory every day throughout the week. Is it getting better? Is it getting worse? What am I feeling? You know, if it's getting better or it's staying pretty similar, we're going to keep, keep progressing. So by the time he got out of his cast, we, he already had the ability to do very, very small ankle cars, ankle rotations. And we had him wiggling his feet. And over the next couple months, uh, we did some manual stuff. So I would stretch his ankle and he would resist me. So we would essentially do pails and rails in different directions. We would do ankle cars and, and toe movement. And the biggest key was just consistency and lots of volume and him constantly tuning into his ankle and his foot and us ensuring that, you know, we're not overdoing it, but we're also giving enough stimulus for change. Uh, and he very, very interestingly, I can't make this up. He had a friend who broke her ankle almost the same way about a week or two earlier. And his progress was months ahead of hers. So six months later, he was, he was running. Um, and, and, and she was in much worse. She was doing kind of a typical type of PT where it was very um, conservative. And, and like, like he wasn't advised, they didn't really tell him much. He wasn't really advised to be moving his toes and to be doing isometrics. Um, but one of the positives, and I think a really big point here, is that I had been training him and introducing him to FRC principles for the previous year. So he was much more aware and willing to do this stuff than he probably would have been if I had just met him. So that really helped when I said, hey, man, like, you're doing your isometrics, you're doing your cars. He did it. Man, that's all. That's, first of all, that's awesome. Uh, secondly, that's a horrible injury to have. So anything, anything time you hear spiral fracture, just think pain. Um, uh, but yeah, yeah I, I think you brought up multiple really important points there. One that I don't think is something we've really touched on today um, is such a big point. It's FRC's training awareness, uh, like physical awareness of the human body um, and that ability to check in with our, our joints and check in with how things are feeling because that can give us so much information about everything. Um, but the second thing you brought up there was, yeah, it's, it was empowering. You gave him multiple options of things that he could do. Sure. Broken ankle. I'm in a cast. There's a lot of limitations, right? It's, it's a scary place to be. It's not a happy place to be, but by giving someone a tool cars and, you know, going through that process, you're empowering them to take action to help themselves. And when it comes to mindset and like how we can deal with, adversity one of the biggest things we need is the ability to take control and take action for ourselves and that's that's huge so yeah uh, really thank you for sharing that uh, that anecdote because that's also that uh, case study because that's great well thanks man yeah it, it's a uh, it was pretty powerful and and you nailed the you know having that empowerment is is very very important yeah and i think that uh that kind of leads well into to where I wanted to go next. Um, again, anyone that follows Brian on Instagram knows that he is the best smiler uh, that I've ever, ever seen. And I'm lucky enough to have a video call. So I get to see it in, in almost in person, I guess, as close as we're going to get for a while. Um, let's talk a little bit about 
mindset and, you know, positivity and how to create that or how to guide that and, you know, what sort of effects it can have and, you know, how we can train people in a way that encourages us to lead this, you know, transitioning to a positive thinking about things because it's very easy to fall into a negative bias, but I think it's very important to try and find a positive bias. So please. <laughs> yeah. Well, first, thank you. I um, take smiles very seriously. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. It's an MU so, gym, right? <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. Well, I, I started an LLC called uh, smiles take you miles. And um, so anyhow, I, um, I, to me, smiling represents self-expression, pure self-expression. And that's something that I've really touted the benefits of as I found myself learning to express myself better in every way yields positive benefits in every context of life. And I used to be someone who, who was kind of afraid and thought too much about how my actions would affect others and it would lead me to inaction. Um, and one, one quick little story, when I left the gym I was at in State College near Penn State, where I had been at for almost seven years, um, there were a lot of trainers there. We were all pretty close. And I had a lot of clients that I worked with for a long time. But there were also a lot of clients who came in who I interacted with, sometimes briefly, um, who I didn't work with directly. And when I left, I had all these people, which completely blew me away, tell me that you know, I so appreciated your smile. Every time I walked in, you gave me that big smile. And some people that like I had never worked with one-on-one -on -one, and I never, I never knew it affected them. And I think when it comes to that, that positivity, understanding how much our energy and our body language can affect other people is really, really important. And that also encouraged me to continue expressing myself because that was like a wake up call. Like, no, you got to keep doing this, man. If this is like how you feel, if you want to let it out, you got to let it out. So to me, the, the positivity and people define it different ways. I really see it as it's not a mask. It's kind of an acknowledgement of everything. You know, you're, you're acknowledging weaknesses or challenges but you're also acknowledging the positives and you're, you're choosing to spend more of your mental energy on that and on the things, and this goes back to the ankle thing and on the things that you can control. So acknowledging everything, learning from where you can, not, not brushing anything under the rug, but also being willing to spend more of that, that mental energy on the, the constructive or the quote unquote positive stuff. Yeah, and I think that was something that we, uh, uh, when we sort of discussed a little bit previously, that was something you mentioned that I was really, really interested in and uh, really thought we could fill over. It was, yeah, it's positivity and being positive about stuff isn't ignoring, you know, challenges. It isn't ignoring hardship. It's not being this fake over positive person, which can be incredibly annoying. <laughs> yeah. But it's not, because, you know, it's not real. And like you said, it's... It, if we treat it like a mask, then it takes away its value because it's not coming from deep inside and our ability to acknowledge every part of the journey leads to us being able to truly express positivity and, you know, ends with a big smile. How do we get someone to that point? Like I know this is obviously an incredibly loaded question, but <laughs> how do we start to allow people to get from that place of, you know, they're coming in, to training, oh, shoulder shit today. Had a had a really bad morning. Kids are pissing me off. Uh, like bad, I slept on my shoulder, so my it's even worse today. Like you know, how do we how do we start to change that? That's a man. That's awesome. That's an awesome question. And as coaches or trainers or even just people, uh, we all deal with that. You know, we deal with people who who come into our life or our day, and people always have things going on, and naturally we it makes sense to focus sometimes on the negative. Um, so on the one hand, acknowledging, you know, if, if someone has a complaint or something's wrong, not just saying, yeah, okay, whatever, you know, acknowledging how they feel, asking questions, 
and then also highlighting positives like oh my my shoulder you know feels like crap today did you did you do any cars well i, I did some this morning some last night oh it's awesome i'm i'm really glad that you uh that you thought about doing that and highlighting but in an authentic and kind of genuine way not like a a rah rah like oh awesome that's so that's so great you know because what the and the smiling thing got me with the the clients is that people are so perceptive more than we i think give them credit for you know people can tell if your tone is not real you know they might not even consciously realize it but some part of them probably knows so if you're really listening to someone and they feel listened to i think that goes a really long way and uh highlighting progress is really helpful but then also in um this empowerment so like you mentioned with with my client with the cast with there are things that they can control and they can do so it's not just oh your shoulder hurts do this do this do this it's okay, your shoulder hurts. I hear you. Like, you know, that kind of sucks. I'm sorry. I'm glad you were doing this. I think this would really help. And here's some good news here. You know, you still made progress on uh, whatever the training session was uh, or the lower body aspect of it. So authentic, like genuinely highlighting the positives, but not overlooking or ignoring, you know, their complaints it goes a long way. That's some really, uh, really great practical advice there. And like you said, it's not just about being a trainer. That's just about being a human and uh, how we can yeah. interact with people on a daily day, on a day-to-day basis. And yeah, it's acknowledging and focusing on the things that you can take control of because there's no point focusing on the other stuff. You have no control over it, right? Like what can we do about that? And it's shifting and then using and using our skills. This is where the skills parts come in as having different tools and, providing those tools because you know again it's all well and good to say oh that's cool you know just take control if you don't give someone ways to take control then that's very hard that and i think that's a that can be a disconnect with like positivity or with helping where you know as as people if we're we're used to helping people where or used to focusing on the positive that's where that can be you know people talk about this toxic positivity and that's where sometimes if you ignore the issue someone's having and you just blanket it with stereotypically positive sentiments that don't provide much, much empowerment that mm. I think can be challenging. Um, or if we just try to, especially if it's not a coaching scenario and we just try to fix whatever's going on, <laughs> you know, when someone, when it's not someone paying for our services. Um, <laughs> so we have to be mindful of that. Um, but one thing that has come up a lot for me lately, I want to make sure I mention, is also sharing ourselves. I got into the trap of always deflecting as a coach, as a trainer, um, deflecting personal stuff because I wanted to focus on them. And I, I didn't want to run into that trap of like being more of a friend than a trainer or a coach. The reality is we need to share enough of ourselves that this person trusts us. So some of it goes to earning trust. If someone trusts us and knows us better and knows that we're, we're real with them, then they're going to listen to us. We can get more out of them. Yeah, that's huge. Like how can we expect people to open up to us if we're not willing to open up, you know, for ourselves as well. And all of this stuff, everything starts with our ourselves, right? It starts with a, like, you know, your own spiritual understanding of the benefits of FRC has made you a better FRC or a better coach in general because you believe in what you're doing and that's important for, for every element. And in the same way, your clients need to believe in you. So, yeah. Yeah. That's, and that's a great, a great point too, is that um, I just kind of lost my train of thought there, but, <laughs> but yeah, they need, Oh, that it's not just them trusting us, but that, they need to open up to us as well. So us opening up enough to make space for them is important because when we ask people questions, we want to know how they're doing. If we're evaluating their training progress, what we want to do in session, what we want to do moving forward. If someone's not fully honest and open with us, um, then we can't help them as much. 
as awesome, man. And uh, that kind of comes to the end of our time. And I think that's a really great positive way to finish. <laughs> Obviously, it's a positive way to finish, but <laughs> about positivity. Um, that's right. But just before we go, just uh, I guess I like to finish all these episodes with a bit of practical advice for someone who's just becoming a trainer. They're hearing all this stuff and going, what is, I, don't, I didn't learn this. I just finished my certificate you know, in fitness. I didn't learn any of this. What's your best piece of advice that you could give someone who's in that, in that stage of just trying to figure things out, figure out their coaching journey? That's, man. So I think it, I do think it'll be helpful to follow functional range conditioning and look into, take everything with a grain of salt you know, nothing you see is going to, is going to guide everything you do. Mm. So take things with a grain of salt, look for overriding principles more than specific exercises. You know, when you're, when you're thinking about programming, when you're looking at what people are doing, think through and maybe even ask if, if it's appropriate, why someone is doing something rather than just looking specifically at the outcome or the output. So I think that is a really important thing to think about. And so that's more of like the specific training. You as a coach, work on yourself, work on your happiness, your physical wellness, your mental wellness, because ultimately, you know, your longevity as a, co- a trainer, as a coach is going to depend on, you know, inside how, how well you can be and how much you can show up for your clientele. That's awesome, man. Yeah. So basically learning how to, how to zoom out, look for the bigger picture and, you know, be open to different things. But then that second piece of advice that I think is something really under talked about and really important. And yeah, you got to make sure you're happy in this because it can be a very, very consuming industry. And uh, it's an important thing to be aware of. Yeah. Thanks so much for sharing that, man. Uh, did you want to tell uh, everyone how they can find you, follow yourself and if they wanted to get in contact with you at all? Yeah. So, so I'm Brian Nevison. You can find me where I'm most active is on Instagram at B underscore Nevison. Um, I've got some, some mobility stuff there. I've, I've got a podcast as well called smiles take you miles. And, um, and my website is smiles take you miles.org. So, um, but from Instagram, you can find all my stuff and, uh, yeah, that's pretty much it. Man, thank you so much for your time and sharing, you know, your detailed knowledge of FRC and just your, your general positivity and not just on here, but on a day-to-day basis. It really is appreciated by me. So thank you so much. Well, thanks so much for having me on. I, uh, I really appreciate it.